This week, as I was praying and, and thinking about this message, as we conclude our series on When People Meet Jesus, I began to pray for a lot of the women in our church and just thanking God for their influence on so many different people in our church. And it kind of, you know, I, I know that you know my brain doesn't work the same as everybody else's, and so random questions come to me sometimes, and I engage them. And the question that popped up as I was praying for many of the women in our church was, well, how much is a mom really worth? And not in a bad way, not like, yeah, not worth it, but like, if they were to get paid for what they're doing, how much would they get paid right now, and how much is a mom really worth? Now, I let my brain go down that rabbit hole, and I thought this would be fun, and so... Thankfully, I, I began to look and think, okay, well, they do a lot of stuff. They're like taxis, they're chefs, they're house cleaners, they're uh, counselors, they're mediators for fights, they're, um, uh, you know, doing all of these things. And most of the time, all that's going on in the home is overlooked. It's not really seen. It's not really recognized. I watch this every single day happen in my home, and I am absolutely floored. And I thought, how do you put a value to that? Well, Salary.com and Forbes got together, and they interviewed about 19,000 moms to figure out what do they do? How's their days look hour by hour? And they started to break down what it would actually cost for these moms if we paid them to do what they do. You ready for this? When you look at this, this is not including any jobs that are held outside of the home. It was $184,820, right? $184,000. Some of you are thinking, that's not enough. That's not enough. But, but here's what's funny is if you were to count then overtime, bonuses, hazard pay, vacations that really aren't vacations, you're just doing what you do somewhere else, it really moves up to upwards of over $200,000. Mom's $200,000 for what you do. Isn't that crazy? And yet, for some reason, in my head, it doesn't feel like enough, right? That's a role that many uh, ladies carry that you don't get the recognition that you always deserve. You don't get the pay. You don't get the vacation. Most moms that I interact with here at Crossbridge and in our community, can I tell you mostly what they're looking for is usually just a recognition, thanks for that. That, that, that. that you see they actually did something. A thank you goes so much further than I ever understood. Moms have this innate ability to sit and be taken advantage of because they do so much it just goes unseen. Think about the rides, the homework, all of those loads of laundry unnoticed. And I think it's amazing when we can say thank you and they feel that value, but it's hard when you're in a position and you do what you love. You're doing what you love to do, and you don't do it for the pay or the recognition, but boy, it's tough when you get overlooked, isn't it? Yeah, you love it, and you're good at it, and it helps people, but, but when you're overlooked over and over, doesn't that get a little frustrating? I think we all feel that feeling sometimes of being overlooked, not being seen, whether it is at work, at our home, in our schools, with our friends, on our teams. We all have this feeling. And the thing about this feeling is it isn't new. It's actually a very old feeling. And so many of the people who meet Jesus 
throughout his life are in this spot, this spot of being overlooked. And what I love about the story of Jesus is that we will learn today that Jesus brings value to those overlooked. Jesus brings value to those overlooked. And for most of this series, as we've looked at it, We've looked at individuals and how they interact and what happens when they um, meet Jesus. But today I'd like to look at two groups of people and what happens when two groups of people in general come into contact with Jesus. And in the first century, these were two groups of people that were highly overlooked in the region where Jesus was, specifically women and children highly overlooked. Okay, women and children were highly overlooked and undervalued. And this might not come as a surprise to anybody here, but the world at that time pretty much revolved around men and what men wanted and desired. I see some of you women grinning like, yeah, what's changed? I will stand here and tell you I agree. I, I, I actually do. I think there's a disconnect sometimes and women still and children still go overlooked and unseen. In the first century, though, what's wild is women had a different role in this region of Jesus where he was. And, uh, you know, they were traditionally uh, made sure that they stayed in the home and they were in charge of all things home-related. They were in charge of making sure that, that everything was completed, everything was in order. This meant you were going to get well water at least twice a day. You would make sure that the meals were all cooked. You would make sure that you were in charge of, um, you know, uh, making all the clothes, mending all the clothes for the family that they needed. You were in charge of the education for your kids up to about five or six, which then your, uh, if you had a boy, your boy would go off and they would go to temple school, and your girls would stay at home, and they would learn house stuff and how to develop into what a man would expect out of a woman in their home, and so you would just teach your daughters how to be great wives or great moms. And the moms, it's, it's wild that they had, I believe many times the women in Jesus's culture had a greater handle on the religious nature of the community. They were more spiritual than the men sometimes because it was their job to basically prepare and host all of the festivals and big high holidays that were happening in their homes as well as Sabbath. And so they would be the ones singing and running this. So they would teach their kids as they're preparing these meals what they're about. So they had this great handle on spirituality in their homes. But it also was weird because many of these women, when they would go to temple, they were required to go to temple daily and they would show up, but they weren't allowed to go all the way in. There were different courtyards in the temple that they could approach, and the one that was really closest was for the priests, and then the one right outside of that was for the men, and then there was actually a place called the Court of Women, and once you got into that, I mean, the only place that you really, the only people you beat out was the Court of Gentiles who were behind you, and you're like, well, at least we're not like them, and you get a little bit in, but most of the teachers did not spend time in the court of Gentiles or the court of women. They all were with the court of men. So these women were expected to be religious, expected to be present, but not really taught. And so they relied on each other to pass down these stories and what they did. And this is amazing to me because the men who were there as they moved closer towards the temple, they would teach each other. They had um, psalm books that they would read from. We read some of them. They actually had some prayer books that they would use. And there is a prayer of thanksgiving that the men would often pray 
Uh, you ready for this prayer that these men would often pray? This is what we read, this prayer of thanksgiving. They would say, thank you, God, that I was not born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. <laughs> Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> what do you think? Isn't this, this is what these guys would pray. They would get close to the temple and be like, thank you, God, I'm not like them, like them, or like them. I am different, I am man. You know, and it's this crazy because women did so much of the hard work, but they carried such a low position in the society. And even worse, if their marriage was toxic while divorce was frowned upon, they had no license to file for any reason. But a man could file for divorce for almost any reason. If the woman displeased him in any way, it could be like, I don't like the way she cooks. I need to be out. There was laws for him to do that, but a woman could not. And so they just were in this really awkward place in this culture. There was no value to them except to be used for whatever purpose the men around them wanted her for. When Jesus shows up on the scene, he disrupts this culture quite a bit. He disrupts it especially because his interactions with women were not always what the culture expected. He began to see women for who they were, who they are. He talked to them. He invited them to follow him as disciples. He taught them when other people were not. He wept with them, and he continued to challenge anyone who objectified them. One of my favorite stories of this is actually found in the biography of Jesus that's written by his best friend, John. And in chapter 8, we read about a story um, that, that a woman is taken advantage of. And we find Jesus actually in a place where no one expected him, and that is teaching in the temple court. But he's teaching in the court of women. So he's not gone to hang out with the, the boys. He's hung back, and he's teaching in the court of women. And these Pharisees come up, and they try to trap him. And without getting graphic, what basically happens is they catch a woman in the act of adultery. And they take her and rip her from that act. And she, in my, again, she grabs nothing but like a, a linen cloth to cover herself or bed sheet to cover herself. And they throw her at the feet of Jesus. They ask him, okay, we're here in the court of the women, so this is doable. She was caught in the act of adultery, so Jesus... According to the law of Moses, we should stone her. What do you say we do? Verse 6 tells us their motive. Check this out in John chapter 8. It says, they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. They were trying to trap him, and what is their pawn? This woman. This woman. This woman created in the image of God a tool net to them to get what they wanted. Why? Because this woman had little to no value. At least to them, she didn't matter. She was disposable. Jesus doesn't even answer them. He doesn't answer them at all. He actually bends down and he begins um, to write in the sand. We don't know what he writes. People have all sorts of ideas, but he, he just bends down and begins to write. And as he does so, these teachers, they, they start belittling him, and they're like, what's your answer? What's your answer? What's your answer? And then he stands up. He looks at them. And in verse 7, he says, all right, 
but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. All right, but, but let the one of you who has never sinned, you get first shot. And we read in this story that at this they begin to drop their stones one by one, oldest to youngest, recognizing that their sin still present for all of them. And it's no one but Jesus left with this woman in this busy court of women. They're isolated by themselves. And he looks at the woman. He says, has anyone thrown a stone at you? Has anyone condemned you? And she says, no. And he says, I don't either. Now go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. I don't know anything about this woman's past. I don't know anything about her future. I wish I did. John doesn't tell us, but what we know is that in a culture where women were used as pawns, where they were undervalued, overlooked, underappreciated, they just weren't seen. Jesus stops in the middle of a courtyard where everyone could see it. And when a woman is abused and used as a pawn, because let's be real, you don't catch someone in the act of adultery unless you're looking for it. It doesn't say this, but I cannot imagine any other situation other than the Pharisees setting her up because that dude isn't thrown before Jesus, is he? He's not found. He's at home. But Jesus in a courtyard doesn't shame them he reveals sin to those around who are being unjust, and he sees this woman. He brings value to this woman. He looks her directly in the eye, and he gives her value, and he gives her hope. You don't have to live a life like this. Go and sin no more. He calls her to a life that's more meaningful than she would have ever experienced. Why? Because Jesus brings value to those who are overlooked. He does. He brings value to those who are overlooked. But what about the kids, right? We, we know that women could be overlooked in that culture, but kids were overlooked too. Children in the first century, like I said before, they were treated differently based on their gender. Girls would stay home and boys would go off to school. But um, there was always a strong desire that everybody had for large families. Uh, they, they, the more kids that you had, they would, you know, say, look how full this is. But they had the same problem then that we have now when it comes to kids, they're expensive. I was expecting an amen there from any parent in the room. They're expensive. Aren't they? Kids are expensive. And it's just like, oh my gosh, there's some high cost to raising kids. And it seems like it gets more expensive as they get older. And all you're hoping for is like, man, if we're spending all this, I hope that you take care of me later. You know, this is an investment in my future, right? You are my 401k. But if you could not afford a child, which did quite happen, it happened quite often with people. If you could not afford a child, there were some options that you had. Actually, dating as far back as um, in the, the Babylonian Empire, we have writings that talk about adoption, that there were options and laws that would help people who had unwanted pregnancies um, deliver a baby and put them up for adoption to work with people. And I love that there's laws dating all the way back to that because it just shows the value of a life that is there. And, and I think it's beautiful, but it still took some money legally to do it well. So if you didn't have the money, it was a little difficult. And so the other option that was up to play 
um, from the Babylonian Empire, um, I mean, even previous to that, but all the way through up into the time of Jesus, is if you had a pregnancy and you had a child that you did not want, you would take that child to uh, the city dump area. And it was kind of considered the safe zone where you could drop your child and leave. And when you left, you gave up rights to that child. And so more often than not, if you thought, I just don't think we can afford this, or there's something wrong with this child, I don't want to be in this situation, you would deliver, you would bring that child to the dump, and then you would leave and let it be. And so what would happen is many times these babies were picked up, but mostly by slavers. They were raised as pawns to be slaves. They were raised to be sold. They were not people of value. They were individuals with no value except for what I could get money-wise for them. And so this stays consistent, like I said, up into the passage that Bincy read for us today. And then we see Jesus entering and completely messing up the culture. Let me reread what she said as we look at how Jesus brings value to the overlooked, these kids. It says this starting in Mark 10, verse 13. One day some of the parents brought their children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them, but the disciples scolded their parents for bothering him. When Jesus saw what was happening, he was angry with his disciples, and he said to them, let the children come to me. Don't stop them, for the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Then he took the children in his arms, he placed his hands on their heads and blessed them. What I love about this passage is just how simple it is. This isn't complex. People are bringing their kids to Jesus because many parents wanted their children to be blessed by rabbis. And so they would bring them for their dedications at the temple, but they would want a rabbi's blessing on their children. Jesus is seen as a rabbi in this region with values, so they want to bring their kids. But as they begin to come with their families, uh, these, these teaching settings that Jesus has are filling, and the disciples are getting frustrated because the parents keep coming, bless my kid, bless my kid, and they stand up like the secret service, and they, no, you will not bring your kids to Jesus. They couldn't stand up last week to a demonized man, could they? But to kids and women, oh, I got you guys down. I'll stand up to you. And they're like, no, you can't get to Jesus. And they don't just tell them to go away. What we read in verse 13 is that it says that the disciples scolded them. Like, they started yelling at them like they were their own children who had done something wrong. Anybody else ever scolded their kid before besides me? Um, yeah, been scolded, and it's like, yeah, you're like, no, liars, liars. This is what we all have to deal with, right? And the word scolded in this story is very interesting because it's used again uh, just a little bit later when Jesus announces to his disciples, guys, just so you know, I'm going to be heading to Jerusalem, and I will be giving up my life there. And his best friend Peter pulls him aside, and he doesn't just gently be like, hey, bud, no, let's not do it. What we read is that it says that Peter scolded him. He reprimanded him. He angrily told him, you cannot do this. He rebukes him. It's like that strong tongue lashing that comes when you need someone to kind of understand. You ever do this thing? Hey! right here. Oh, you know that feel? You feel like you've done something wrong and you're like, wait, 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 is he serious right now? Is he not serious? Is he yelling at me? 
That's the feel that Peter's got with Jesus. Don't do that to Jesus. But that's the feel that every disciple has with these women and children. Hey, get out. Get out. Leave. And verse 14 then says that Jesus was angry. Not angry that the kids were coming and the women were coming. He was angry that the disciples, these are the ones who have been following him, who knows that he is welcoming people over and over and over. These are the ones that he gets angry at because it's, that angry is another word. Um, the, the word that could be used is indignant. Uh, it's used in other places. But it's this strong angry at an injustice that you see. Jesus gets so angry not at the people, but at his followers. Why? Because the injustice was these people are overlooked by this entire culture and they're not getting shamed by the culture. They're getting shamed by my followers, by you. What are you doing? He's standing up for the injustice that is here and he demonstrates the ultimate form of what it means to be loved and to find value in verse 16, when it says, then he took the children in his arms and he placed his hands on their heads and he blessed them. He pushed his disciples aside and as his arms went out that way, he invited those kids in to bless them. And I think we learn so much from Jesus in this small passage about what it means to find value in kids who are overlooked. Because really, where does their value come from if they're just kids? Where's the value? Well, there's value in who they are. There's value in who they are. When Jesus meets kids, he treats them like humans. He treats them like they're people who matter. I think this lesson would have challenged anybody who was in that uh, region that Jesus was teaching, as well as his disciples. Kids have value. They just do. And it's not going to be materially, and it's not going to be monetarily. Actually, the, the cost of kids and to raise kids right now is more than ever. Um, according to statistics from the Brookings Institution, the average cost of raising a child who was born in 2015 all the way up till they are 17 is just over $310,000. $310,000. That's a kid born in 2015. So if you've had a kid born in the last like two or three years, I can't give you a number, but more. <laughs> but more. And it's funny because I look at that 310 and I'm like, wow, that's a lot. But that's a national average. When you take the Northeast into account, I mean, you're talking well over $350,000 to raise a kid from birth to 17. And it may not feel like that unless your kid's playing travel sports, then it feels like that every year. But let me tell you, it's expensive. So the value is not in, oh, they're going to make me money now. No, they're not going to bring any money into your home. If they cost us so much, why in the world then are so many people trying to have kids or want to have big families? Why are our towns scrambling to build bigger schools and to make more space, hire more teachers? It's simple. Because a child's value isn't in what they could bring to the table. It's in what they give because of who they are. They give all the love that they have unashamedly. Do you ever have a kid tell you they love you in public when there's people around? Man, does that feel good? Did you ever get one of those hugs from a kid that feels like they're trying to squeeze the life out of you and it doesn't really hurt, but you know they're giving it everything? That changes your day, doesn't it? You know the laughter when you're really pissed 
and you're done with work and frustrated, and all of a sudden they remember something and they start laughing, and you can't help but laugh. And it changes the entire demeanor of your classroom, of your home, of that family party where there was tension. You know the trust that they have when, when you're driving in the car and they never ask you, are you safely driving? Are you obeying all the... They trust you. And then when you get out of the car and they grab your hand before, maybe that's not cool, but they grab your hand and walk with you. Why? Because they trust you that you're going to get them to the front doors of the supermarket. Or in my case, it was Home Depot with capes on and, you know, princess outfits. I had the cape, she had the princess outfit. Um, these are things that kids bring is this demonstration of trust. The joy that we find when a kid discovers something new. When they learn something they've never learned before, and all of a sudden we don't find this joy in anything else other than their discovery. I mean, come on. Facebook, Instagram, it is filled with these moments in people's lives. A kid takes a first step, and you would think, you know, the Berlin Wall is coming down and it should be broadcast all over because this is huge. And the reality is it is huge because they are growing into a human, into an adult. These are steps in that direction and there should be an excitement and we do get excited about things. Does that really bring any money to your home? Does it bring any value to your home? It does. An immense amount of value. You're never going to find the joy that kids bring into classrooms, into hallways, into our homes and our families. You will never, ever find that in a paycheck, and you will never find that in a finished, you know, project at your house. You will feel good, and you should feel successful in what you do. But that value only comes from the kids that are all around us, ours and not ours. Our joy comes from them. We find joy because of them. And Jesus in this moment, reprimands the disciples. Why? Because he's devaluing them. He's saying, you think they're worth nothing, and yet they're worth everything to us. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. The other thing that we learn from kids and where their value comes from is there's value in how they think. There's value in how they think. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God is like a child or receive it like a child and never enter it. The way that they, kids think is so much different than adults, isn't it? It's just so much different. Their brain and the way it develops is amazing. And if you've never studied the five different stages of brain development, I would, if you're bored, go for it. It's quite fascinating and fun. If you like that sort of thing, I do. I found it awesome. And there's five different stages, but for this morning, it's actually most interesting when it comes to kids. Stage two and stage three, things are happening that are fascinating. And in stage two, this is like a period up to about six years old. Things are happening in the brain where they're developing reasoning, uh, perception, their frontal lobe of their brain is like developing what emotions are connected to what things. And then what they experience kind of begins to reinforce what they were already thinking because they don't really have thoughts developed yet. They're learning them as they go. By the time that they are six, their brain is about 95% of the size as an adult's brain. So that's a lot of brain in a little kid, isn't it? That's a lot of space to fill. So if you've ever been around a six-year-old who asks questions incessantly of you and like, why this, why that? Or let's be real, a 42-year-old pastor that always asks the same things. 
listen, their brains are growing. They're learning. They are trying to fill it, and it's going 100 miles an hour. Um, can I just pause and say thank you, thank you, thank you to preschool, kindergarten, first and second grade teachers. You are heroes. You are amazing. How you deal with this day in and day out, God bless you. God bless you. Thank you. You have more influence on our world than anyone gives you credit for. You are overlooked. We see you. Actually, all teachers, for that matter, we see you. But their brains are developing up to six years old. At stage two, when it ends at six, stage three is when our brain begins to take all these ideas, all these things it's filled with, and it begins to prune it and say, some of this is going to be necessary. Some of it is not going to be necessary. What's the best and fastest way that I can make the connections that I have in my brain? And the last part of our brain to develop is right up here. It's this prefrontal cortex. It's this really cool part of your brain that controls all your impulses and all your decision-making. This part of your brain doesn't finish developing until your early 20s. So... That means the part of our brain that makes decisions isn't done developing until our mid-20s when we were teenagers. I'm talking to adults here, and we got frustrated, and we made decisions that were less than stellar in our lives, and we're like, why did I do that? I'm going to give you some freedom here to say maybe there is no reason other than you didn't think about it. And even if you did think about it, your brain could not make the decision to get to that place. It wasn't developed yet. So it's like, oh, well, my brain wasn't developed. You can use it as an excuse right now, okay? My brain wasn't developed. And if you're a teenager here, you get that excuse once a day. Okay, just once a day, you can, you know, what was that decision? I don't know. Sometimes that's a valid answer. I don't, I, I have no idea why I do. Anybody else ever done that thing? Okay, come on, like, oh, man. Well, their brain's not done developing yet. But Jesus looks at his disciples here. And he makes this so simple. You can't understand the kingdom of heaven unless you begin to think like kids. In this stage two, stage three, where everything is being formed, everything is coming together. At a kid's early age, they're not trying to make sure that every T is crossed and every I is dotted, are they? No, they're, if their emotional experience matches up with something they thought, they say, well, then this must be true. And so these kids are eager to get to Jesus. And their parents are eager for them to get there. We're going to go see Jesus. We're going to go see Jesus. They say, yes. And then, then when they get there, the disciples say, no. What is being formed in the mind of a child at this point is that Jesus doesn't want me there because of the disciples. But they want to get to Jesus. Why? Because he's been demonstrating himself as safe, as honorable. I don't think the kids really cared about anything else than just getting to Jesus. And how we treat kids around us impacts the future that they have. Just so, And this is collective for us as a whole church. I think if we put ourselves in the place of one of those kids, could you imagine an excitement to get to Jesus, this excitement to get anywhere, and then all of a sudden when you show up at the gates, you're told, no, you don't belong here, go away. He doesn't want to see you. What's that going to do to you? What's that do to our value and our worth? The experience would tell them Jesus doesn't care. And so what Jesus does is he rebukes his disciples. Why? Because this is injustice. This is someone who's overlooked, who needs to be seen. And the disciples were in a place where they could build up and into these kids' lives, or they could devalue them and push them away. And they made their choice. And Jesus, just like with every woman that he comes in contact with, 
when injustice flares up, will not have it. Because the soul of a child is a lot like wet cement. It's being formed. And as it's being formed, you and I, we get the privilege of helping to form what that looks like. And the Holy Spirit is, is shaping that, but when an experience that's super negative, those words that devalue, they all of a sudden come and set that cement a little bit, don't they? You and I know this is true for us. Words change our lives, don't they? I could imagine you and I are in a place where we are today because there was someone who saw something in you when you were a kid. They saw something in you when no one else saw it, and, and maybe they spoke a word over you that was kind, that was blessing, that told you that you were worth something. And they could have been a teacher, they could have been a coach, it could have been a parent, an aunt, an uncle, a cousin. Um, it could have been anyone that you are sitting around right now or that's in your family or neighborhood, but they saw something in you and said, wow, that's different, that's really cool. And here you are later on in life following that path because someone believed in you. Someone saw something and your life looks different because someone helped set the cement and say, going after Jesus is worth it. You have value. You have purpose. You're not a waste. But we also have the flip side too, don't we? How many of us can think back to at times, someone said that one word, that one phrase, that one thing, and we feel fat. We feel ugly. We think we're stupid. We're never going to make it. We're never going to work hard enough. We're never going to be able to get to that place we want. And, and people are like, I can't got to get that out of your head. You can't get it out of your head because someone planted it there so early, and you've done nothing but fight this your whole life thinking that you have nothing to bring to your marriage, to your parenting, to your friend group, to your sports team. You will always have to strive to belong somewhere and you battle this every day. You'll always be fat no matter how skinny you, or what your scale says. You'll always feel that way. Why? Because someone's words had an impact on us that not only can build us up and point us in a direction towards Christ, but they can absolutely destroy us. And if you are here today, I need to tell you that Jesus weeps with you over those words of condemnation and devaluing. And he would look at those people who spoke those words and stand up to them like he did the disciples to say, no, that is my child. They have value. You are not unseen by your Savior Jesus. You are not unseen by Jesus today. He sees you. He knows your name. He knows your wiring, and he loves you dearly. You are not overlooked. You are not worthless. You have value. You and I have the same opportunity to do this. And here's what's wild as I think back in closing today is simply that the Pharisees and the disciples missed what God was doing in the life of these kids and these women, and it's these kids and these women who go on to continue to change the world. The disciples were amazing followers of Jesus, and God used many men throughout history. But he has used so many women and children, and I know that because I'm a testament to my life being changed, to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ because of so many men, women, and children who were overlooked in their lives, who felt seen by Jesus and brought the gift of seeing, and they saw me. Sometimes I really think, that it's the people who are easily overlooked who often bring the greatest blessings into our life.
It's the ones that everyone else forgets about that speak to us. That person who spoke that positive word into your life, that shaping word that has you grounded in who you really are. I bet you no one else knows who they are. I bet you no one has thought about that person besides you, even in this moment. Maybe you haven't even thought of that until this moment. And today, yes, thank the people around you, the women and, and your moms, and, and celebrate them wonderfully. But who are those people that have fed into your life that you need to stop and say thank you? You are not overlooked. And in our culture, moms, you get overlooked so often. But you demonstrate such love, such generosity, such selflessness that shows us, Jesus, the women of our church, thank you for giving up so much to care for us together. We are better because we are all together and you are here. Thank you for bringing value. You are not overlooked. You are not unseen. Who is it that has spoken into your life? As we approach the communion table today, we elevate Christ as the one who sees every one of us. That he sat around a table with disciples who were overlooked. They actually were passed over by every teacher and didn't get to continue in their temple schooling. And Jesus said, I'll take you and you and you and you. And they're like, amen, we're a mess. Perfect. Could you imagine if Crossbridge was a place where we embraced it's okay to be overlooked because Jesus sees us? And that an overlooked people could then see others who feel overlooked and bring them the hope that we have found in Christ. Could you imagine our neighbors, our schools, and our classrooms and how different they would be if those people on the outside were seen. This is what Jesus has demonstrated for us and elevated for us to do, is to see those who are overlooked and bring value the same way it's come into our life. As we approach the table today, I would love for us to remember Christ's death and resurrection, to remember that there are probably words that we have spoken over people's lives that have caused them a negative direction. This is a perfect time to confess that to Christ and say, I am sorry. And if you can remember that, to apologize even to that person. We need that. But also to remember that Christ has demonstrated for us that we give up of who we are for the sake of others. Would you stand with me as we prepare to receive communion today? As we prepare to receive communion, we remember that Christ held up this bread and this cup, and he said, this is my body that's been broken for you, and this, this cup is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And as we come to the table, I just want to give us 30 seconds or so to just sit and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us maybe where we're not feeling valued and to remind us that he sees us or to those where images, people's names would come to our mind of people that we can reach out to to remind them they are seen. So Holy Spirit, would you speak to us as we prepare?
Jesus, thank you for the privilege of elevating you above all else every week. Jesus, thank you for the gift of pointing us right to you every week because this is all about you and stepping towards you. All about you. At this time, if you have chosen to follow Jesus with your life and trusted him, we would encourage you to come to the table. You can uh, grab a cracker, dip, uh, or one of the prepackaged ones and head back to your seat and we will um, eat and drink together this morning. So would you come?